desert storm, by blue sunshine, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of George Lucas. Chapter 6 Ben is dismayed to discover that the Twilight Quartermaster's assistant had done more than force him into more vibrant colors. Not a one of his shirts is done in plain, solid shades, and while Ben has often admired the delicate patterns and vibrant details which adorned those few senators he would call friends, he has never wanted to emulate their example. The high-collared shirt he finally conceded to had a sweeping, swirling pattern of soft reds and oranges, which reminded him of the storms on Tatooine, and otherwise did an excellent job of making him uncomfortable in their vibrancy. Anakin may have been fond of Nubian maroons and purples as a knight, but at least he had settled for muted, solid colors. Ben's neck and shirt sleeves, on the other hand, were made all the more vibrant by his pale cream over-tunic, and he forewent a robe entirely because his options were displeasing. By the time he has painstakingly arranged the folds of his tunic and tabards and belts, Ben has been procrastinating his own reflection for at least half an hour, and finally drags himself towards the fresher, absently noting Shmi's presence in the small kitchen as he passes. The image he had so feared was not there at all. He does not see a general, a failed master. The man in his reflection is old, far older than he ought to have been, face half-hidden by unkempt beard and snarled hair, bleached of color by the unforgiving rays of Tatooine's suns, his skin sand-strafed and wind-beaten, exaggerating the lines of his face. Only the blue of his eyes remains the same, edged with gray and flecked with green. The man in his reflections merely looks tired and defeated. Ben sighs and rummages through the crate of toiletries they'd collected, pleased when he does come up with a set of sonic trimmers and a comb. It seems four years is not long enough to forget the familiar motion of grooming his beard to its preferred length from the Clone Wars, remembering the gentle brush of Satine's fingers and her wistful comment that it hid too much of his face. That was precisely the point. He'd been a too young knight with a too old Padawan, and by the time Anakin had hit his growth spurt, the beard had been necessary to help discern between the ages of the student and the teacher. Pulling a comb through his tangled hair without the assistance of electrostatic is difficult and rather painful. But Ben grits his teeth and does it because he hadn't even thought about grooming supplies while they'd been in the storeroom beyond the most basic. Trimming his hair is a more tedious affair, as cutting it short would only remind him too much of the wars. Instead, he cuts it back to the length he'd worn before the galaxy fell to pieces, and in doing so removes much of the frayed, bleached-out color which had aged him so. Returning his hair to its natural cinnamon, Ben cleans his face and neck with a towel, and when he looks again, he can actually recognize the man looking back at him, beaten down, but not so utterly without hope, and not so terribly old and frail for his years. The edges of his face are sharper than he recalls, as Tatooine and apathy had stripped him of weight he could probably not have afforded to lose. 
and his skin is darker for having had its battles with desert suns. He does not look quite like Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the name Ben fits this face more easily. It will do, he decides, and braves their plant-infested quarters once more. That there are miniature sconces of flowering moss adorning the trim edges of the mirror has not escaped his notice. Ben! Ben jerks, startling at the high-pitched shout assaulting him immediately upon his exit from the fresher, and he looks down to find Anakin with his face upturned, trailing his yellow and white blanket like a shroud. Anakin, Ben replies, willing his heart to stop hammering at his grip on the doorway to unclench. I'm a matey, the youngling mulishly reports, and then lifts his arms in an up gesture. Despite his improving basic, the boy seems fixed in his refusal to trade Amu for Mom. Ah, Ben says, stooping to lift the boy. Thank you for telling me. Even if he had scared the daylights out of the former High General, Shmi startles badly when Ben enters the kitchen, and it is Ben's instinctive reaction when the tea tray in her hands jerks and flings its contents to flash out a hand and make it stop. Cups, saucers, the pot— and the overturned milk all remain midair. Held in place with the force, and Shmi calmly pulls them back into order on her tray, apparently unaffected by scooping the milk out of the air and back into its proper vessel. Ben lets his grip on the force fade away, and Shmi looks him straight in the face, studying his features now that they are revealed to her. Slowly she relaxes, offers him a nod, and leads the way into the sitting room, settling herself down at the low stone table that fits perfectly into the curved, pale planted space. She lets him swallow his first sip of tea before she asks him to explain what he meant the day before about attachments. The Jedi believe that attachments lead to fear, and fear leads to anger, and anger leads to the dark side and so forbids them in order to protect ourselves from the temptation. But the true lesson one must learn, and that we are so poor at teaching, is that attachments themselves are not wrong. It is okay to care. It is even okay to love. Where we fail is when we care so much, love so much, that we cannot let those attachments go. He holds up a hand before stalling her protest. I do not mean let go as in to stop feeling them, to stop having them, but in the ability one has to do their sworn duty above all else. As a Jedi Knight we take vows that swear our allegiance first and foremost to the galaxy itself, and no other may come first, not a family, not a lover, not a friend. If we are called, we must go. Shmi's expression gives nothing away as she sips her tea and Ben savors his. A Jedi is a Jedi, first and foremost, and only. For a Jedi to divide his attention between the will of the Force and the will of others is to invite disaster. Furthermore, Ben hesitates, letting regret wash over him and pass. Love is a powerful force. But if we choose to love one above all others, the things we would do for them with our power could be so devastating. What parent would not kill for their child? 
And how easy would it be, when all you have to do is raise a hand and focus, and snuff out their life with the force, who would not steal to feed their people, and who could stop a thief, who can hold you powerless to move against them? And what of war? When one individual can level battlefields, if they don't care who dies as consequence. We could so easily be monsters, Shmi Skywalker, that admits wearily. It is why we are sworn to peace, why we sacrifice so much, and why we give our hearts to a galaxy at large that never quite seems to give them back. We must learn to let go, or risk crushing those precious things we try to so tightly hold on to. I love my son, Shmi tells him, after reflecting on what he has told her. But if you could not have freed us both, I would have let him go. It would break my heart and crush my soul, but I would have let him go. This I understand. She is quiet a moment and continues. I hate them. The ones who hurt us, the Dipur who enslaved us, the ones who were free and did nothing to help us. There was so much out there, and we had so very little. I hate, and it is a part of who I am, Shmi explained slowly. But I did not teach this to Anakin. Hate would keep him alive, as it has kept me alive and many others. It is stronger than hope for most of our people. But I did not teach him hate. It is a lesson he will learn from the world, but for me I wanted him to know love. I tried to teach him compassion, to share what little we have, to accept kindness, and know when not to accept kindness, because sometimes it comes with a price. And that price can be more than a soul can bear. The slavers have power. Shmi shivers at the memory. And Anakin has power. I knew one day he would not be contained. And I could not protect him. So if I could give him so little in this life, I wished to give him one thing. We are not slavers. We do not act like them. They are greedy and cruel, and care nothing for others. I was afraid of what he could be, Shmi admits, while Anakin nibbles on a bread ration and watches them curiously, not understanding their conversation. This is... This is what the Jedi fear too, is it not? You fear what you could be. Yes, Ben tells her. As tea and leftover travel rations are the only thing they have stocked in their cupboards, the trio once more venture out into the temple, and Ben tries to cross-navigate the nearest dining hall because he has lived on the other side of the temple all his life, and the new room assignment feels backwards. Anakin is dressed in the same soft white clothes all the Kreshlings share, 
and Shmi has a green shawl wrapped around another undyed gray dress. He wants to take them to the Room of a Thousand Fountains after breakfast, because the uniformity of a cityscape like Corazant is not dramatically different from the uniformity of a desert world, and Ben wants to show them that there is more to the galaxy. He wants to let them explore ponds and gardens and see a waterfall for the first time. Ben is preoccupied with this rather pleasant thought, and so does not sense what lies before him as he guides his charges into the dining hall. I don't want to say goodbye, Obi-Wan, Ben sniffles, the pink Mon Calamari's bass voice carrying. You shouldn't be leaving, it's not fair. No night will take me, Obi-Wan mutters. Master Yoda says it's only the will of the Force and that my talents lie elsewhere. I know what he means, I'm useless. No one is useless, Shmi says swiftly and firmly stepping aside and laying a gentle hand on the boy's shoulder. She's a young woman when she isn't hiding, and she is never not hiding. But she is a slave mother, and slave mothers followed Aramu. All children were their children. You're a person, and you have value, as all people do. The initiates startle, looking nervous and contrite over their topic of conversation. Sorry, Obi-Wan mutters, looking down. I didn't mean it. He lies, and Ben knows he lies. At almost thirteen, Obi-Wan Kenobi is small for his age. With a thick mop of deep red hair and vivid ocean eyes that seem slightly too large for his wan face. His emotions are kept off his face, but anger and despair waft off the boy. The masters had believed it meant him close to the dark side, and failed to understand that those emotions did not lash out, but turned in, that Obi-Wan would destroy himself before he turned against anyone else. You're being sent away, Shmi asks in her lilting voice, with an accent no temple initiate has ever heard. Yes, ma'am, Obi-Wan nods miserably. There's no one to teach me. Shmi looks incredulous, her dark, sharp gaze casting around to the many Jedi in the room, masters and knights steadily dotted in among the Padawans and initiates. A Naito master may only raise one Padawan learner at a time, Ben explains, still disconcerted by watching his younger self and remembering unfondly the time he hallucinates at an out-of-body experience. Her brows draw in, and she gives him an inscrutable but judging look before she nods, quick as a bird turning in flight. You have no student, she points out. And Obi-Wan looks up through his lashes, although too spurned by prior experience to truly be hopeful. Obi-Wan is a good initiate. He tries really hard, Bant chimes in. And he's really kind, Reef adds from her left or he's been hiding from the adults in her shadow. Do it or not, Obi-Wan mutters bitterly. There is no try. Shmi tilts her head oddly. There is no want. There is no need, she says. There is only what must be. Ben gapes at her, as do the initiates. It is a slave's lesson, but in terms of the Force, 
It is a much clearer path towards understanding than Yoda's adage. Slow realization dawns on Obi-Wan's skeptical face, and he bows his head in gratitude for the lesson. Initiates, have you had your breakfast? Obi-Wan didn't want to eat, Bant replies, and then flushes deeply for having blurted that out. She shoots her friend a guilty look. Loss of appetite in unpleasant circumstances is not uncommon, Ben explains rationally. But it can be unhealthy. Once we've all collected our trays, would you mind terribly if Lady Skywalker, her son, and I joined you at your table? The gaggle of initiates nods eagerly except for Obi-Wan, who eyes him suspiciously. Ben offers him a bland smile and is rewarded with a scowl that is all too familiar. The youngling darts off after his friends, while Ben and Shmi follow more sedately. Why can a knight not teach more than one Padawan? Shmi inquires. It is believed that multiple students deny each other the master's undivided attention, and that their nurturing suffers for it. As single parents always give all effort to only children, and mothers can never raise properly two or more, Shmi inquires wryly. Before cringing and then smoothing her own cringe away, reminding herself that she is safe here. I'm not saying I completely agree, but there is also a matter of danger, more so than of neglect. In the field, it can be difficult to keep track of and protect a single Padawan who is less experienced and more vulnerable. Trying to shield more than one student and anyone else whose safety may be your responsibility is a lot to ask of anyone, Ben explains. Knowing without doubt that had Qui-Gon had another apprentice alongside Ben, it is unlikely both of them would have survived to knighthood. And that is not even considering that competition between a single master's padawans could end poorly for all three parties. The rivalry of the young can have disastrous consequences and that's even when the adult in the room is not encouraging it. Xanatos hadn't been Qui-Gon's apprentice in more than a decade when Qui-Gon became his master, and yet Ben had never escaped the older Padawan's shadow. Then why not allow the addition of a younger Padawan only to those whose Padawans are nearly knights? Shmi counters. Or his assignments are not nearly so dangerous. It has been argued. Ben replies neutrally. They reach the line and drop the discussion in favor of attempting to serve themselves dishes of digestive compatibility. Ben does not comment on Shmi's choice of pan-fried grubs, and she does not judge him for putting no less than three cups of calf on his tray, considering he's already had two cups of tea. They join the initiates. Anakin wiggling his way out of his mother's grip to scoot along the bench seat and to carefully pick up one berry at a time out of the bowl on his mother's tray to eat it. Are you an ambassador, Lady Shmi? Karen inquires politely, the human boy having served himself mostly pudding. Shmi blinks at the question, so does Ben. I am not, Shmi replies eventually. Reefed watching in horrified fascination as she delicately picks up a grub with her chopsticks and pops it in her mouth, a small snap occurring when she bites down that makes the Dressalian boy turn a little green. Is your son going to join the crush? Bant inquires. Is that why you're here? I have not decided, 
she replies, though she looks worried of her response. We are here because Jedi Nasaday has helped us. Were you in trouble? Karen perks up. Was it pirates? Anakin has managed to scoot himself down the bench until he is across from Obi-Wan, who is staring mulishly at the single muffin on his plate with an air of dejection. Slowly, in what he apparently considers to be a sneaky manner, Anakin reaches over the table and pries one of the green berries out of the muffin and then hurriedly crams it into his mouth. Obi-Wan's brow crinkles, and then his lips twitch a little towards a smile. And Anakin does it again, slowly, all the while staring back at Obi-Wan with wide, totally innocent eyes. We were slaves. And Jedi Nasaday has brought us to freedom, Shmi answers them, nothing of her feelings in her voice. Oh, Garen gulps, fidgeting awkwardly as he tries to think of something adequate to say to that. Slavery is evil, Bant declares, and I'm glad you're with us now. Shmi smiles at the girl. So am I. Ben knows he has been outmaneuvered by fate at the remainder of what awaits Obi-Wan if he goes. Qui-Gon Jinn's ultimate retraction of his utter determination to deny the boy his apprenticeship aside, what Obi-Wan faced in those short few weeks, emotionally and physically, was his first and worst trial. It left him with insecurities and doubts that would never leave, and an unerring tendency towards self-sacrifice and self-destruction, which had fractured his relationships with Qui-Gon, with Anakin, with Ahsoka, with Satine, more than once. Initiate Kenobi, Ben calls softly, making the boy's head jerk up. There is no easy path to knighthood, no guarantee of success, and I will be honest and inform you that I will likely fail to be what you would wish for in a master, in a Jedi and in a man but I can swear to teach you the lessons that you will need for what is to come. If you listen and if you can bear them. The boy's mouth has dropped open and snapped shut, and Ben has his full attention. Initiate Kenobi. Would you assent to accept my teachings and become my Padawan learner? Everyone else at the table is dead quiet, and Obi-Wan's nose flares as he sucks in a deep breath and lets it out in a rush that slumps his shoulders. I would be honored, Master Nasaday, Obi-Wan says gratefully, standing up so he can bow. <laughs>